All right. Good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel Moore. I'm one of the elders here at Providence, and this is my very first Sunday to preach. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> thank you. Hopefully y'all are still clapping at the end of this. Um, it's not really ever something I thought I would be doing, never really wanted to do it. Um, you know, for a long time, I've had anxiety about speaking in front of a large crowd of people. Y'all will probably see that come out a little bit today. Uh, I've even had anxiety speaking one-on-one -on -one with people. It's something I've had to work through. Um, and as I prep for something like this, I am always reminded of a story of uh, an accounting class I was taking. Because uh, you always think, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I'm going to tell you uh, what the worst thing that could happen. Uh, so I was an accounting major, studied accounting. Uh, they give us communications classes to... Uh, you know, help accountants relate to the, to the common people, to the real people. And it was the day of one of our speeches. And um, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, um, I went to A&M. Um, and so there's large class sizes, uh, large classrooms, a lot of people who would be listening to these speeches. And so the room is such that it's, a, it's like a semicircle stadium. So the, the people are like looking down at to this little spot to where a professor, or in this case, where we would be giving our speeches. So the first student gets called up to go give a speech, and one of my buddies next to me is like, man, uh, why is it that five minutes of your day can make you anxious for an entire week? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm anxious too. Um, so this kid starts talking, and about halfway through his speech, he freezes. He cannot get another word out. I'm like, please just say one word, something. So a hundred eyeballs are literally staring down at this kid. He's not looking at him. I'm definitely not trying to make eye contact with him. I try to avoid awkward conversa uh, uh, situations at all costs um, and awkward conversations. Um, but um, so he finally looks up, sees a hundred eyes staring down at him walks off, sits down, professor doesn't acknowledge it at all, uh, calls the next person up. We actually never see this kid again in this class. I don't know if it's because the teacher told him to drop it because he was going to fail or if he just dropped. But I lean back over to my friend. I'm like, that's why. That's why five minutes of your day is going to make you anxious for an entire week. Um, so the bar is set. If I don't walk off the stage here uh, in the middle of this thing, we're going to call this a success. Um, but it really is a privilege to speak with you guys today. I was scheduled to speak back in July uh, when COVID threw a wrench into the preaching calendar. And so we're continuing our doctrine series today. Uh, we're almost done. We're on the doctrine of stewardship. And I was excited to be able to come and speak to you guys on stewardship because that's essentially what I was going to speak about in July as well. Uh, something that has always been on my mind and my heart since we've lived here in the woodlands is uh, why it's such a struggle for us to uh, be open-handed with our things, with our possessions, uh, even though we know the gospel, even though we know we're supposed to be open-handed, what is it uh, that makes us uh, closed, that makes us feel entitled to our things? Um, and there was a guy in college who said something uh, to me um, that's always kind of haunted me. It's always there at the forefront of my mind. Um, so going back to college, uh, this was right before my senior year, I was in a Bible study 
uh, with a man named Bob Lampkin. Uh, his family, uh, Bob and Donna Lampkin, and, and their seven kids had just uh, uprooted from the East Coast somewhere to College Station, um, and they were uh, volunteer staff on, with CRU, Campus Crusade for Christ, um, which is an organization I was a part of in college. And uh, so getting to know Bob a little bit more and to get to know his story, um, he was, they were living on the East Coast somewhere working for Mars Corporation, the maker of you know, M&Ms and all the other candy that you guys got 20 pounds of last night. And uh, he was living very comfortably. Again, they had seven kids, so as comfortable as you can with seven kids. And uh, uh, making lots of good money. And he just, he woke up in the middle of the night one night and it's like, he tells his wife, Donna, I, we can't do this anymore. We're not, we're not living for God. We don't, um, you know, we don't have direction when it comes to living for the gospel. He's like, we've got we've to make some changes. So for them, what that meant was to uproot their lives. Uh, he went to AM. So he's like, let's, you know, go back to the motherland college station. And, um, and uh, he got a job at the facilities department at AM, and they volunteered on staff with crew. And they eventually joined Crusade full time, uh, moved all of their kids over to East Asia to um, minister to college students there. Uh, to spread the gospel uh, to the colleges over in China. And what he said that has haunted me is, as part of his story, he said, we weren't chasing the American dream, but when you're not chasing after anything else, the American dream chases after you. It finds you, and it catches up with you. Um, and that's really the context of how we're going to frame the rest of the sermon this morning. It's meant to be a warning to all of us in upper middle class suburbia that we need to be paying close attention to how we handle our time, our possessions, our money, and how we view that, how we war against that through and look at our, our possessions and our time and our energy through the lens of the gospel. So that's where we're going to be in the next half hour or so. I see the clock. Um, I, I'm not going to lie, the, the the pre-runs I've done of this have gone pretty long, so uh, I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground quickly. Um, a lot of these things we're going to talk about could be series of sermons in and of themselves. So we're going to try to take a 10,000-foot view across stewardship. Um, so a little bit of a roadmap. We're going to do. We're going to talk about what is a steward. What does God give us to steward over? what is biblical stewardship, and then we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into uh, our stewardship of the gospel, stewardship of our gifts, stewardship of our money, and we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about money. Uh, heads up, I was uh, saying some of this to my wife last night, and I've used the word stewarding and steward and stewardship, made up some words. Uh, I've used it as a noun, verb, adjective, participle, onomatopoeia, whatever you call it. So just if you can uh, get past the grammar, I think you'll understand the context. Um, so first, let's cover what a steward is. What is a steward? Stewardship, in its most basic meaning, is the careful and responsible management of something that's been entrusted to you. Uh, what you've been entrusted with is not your own, and you will ultimately be held accountable for how you've managed what's been entrusted to you. So the key here is that as a steward, you are not the ultimate owner and you'll be held accountable. 
So what does the Bible tell us that we have to steward over? We see many examples of things that God has given us to steward over as humans. Uh, Going back to the very beginning where we started many of the sermons in this series, we are to be stewards over God's creation. Genesis 1, 28 says, And God blessed them, that's man. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord has given us as man the ability to have domain and steward over his creation. We also see that Israel was to be steward over, stewards over God's law, to be the shining example of God's glory to the nations all around them. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel was to meditate on God's law, was to think about God's law, was to know and memorize God's law, to teach it to their kids. Uh, it says that they were to bind it on their hands and let it be frontlets between their eyes. They were to know God's law because what did it do? It pointed them back to God. And it, told, and it told the other nations what it meant to uh, be an example of a nation that God uh, is over, a nation that gives glory to God. We ultimately see Israel's uh, failure and struggle with stewarding over that, but it sets the example as to how we are to steward over the gospel, which we'll unpack in just a little bit. So the list goes on and on and on. We are to be stewards to our spouse, to our kids, to our possessions, to our neighbors, to the poor, to the needy, to the orphan, to the widow, to different races, to people who don't look like us, to basically everyone that has crossed our paths. We are to be good stewards over the work that God has given us. And those are just the things here on this earth. We are to be stewards over the things that are unseen, such as the gospel and the gifts that the Spirit has given us. So how are we to be a good steward over these things? What does biblical stewardship look like? So I'm going to give you two things that you have to know and memorize and internalize to be a good steward, to be a good biblical steward. steward. Uh, First, biblical stewardship requires us to acknowledge that we, ourselves, belong to the Lord. In the beginning of Romans chapter 1, Paul, he, um, he goes on for about five verses about how he's set apart for, you know, the gospel and he's an apostle. But at the end, in verse 6, he then says, And you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now that we are Christians, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. As a biblical steward, you must believe that you are now not your own. Secondly, biblical stewardship requires us to acknowledge that everything is the Lord's. Psalms 24.1 states, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and the world, and those who dwell within. And this, as American Christians, is likely where we are going to struggle the most. Uh, It is easy to say, well, yeah, creation's the Lord's. He created the trees, the fish, the birds, whatever it might be. And those are his, and he's given us, you know, domain over that. Um, But it gets a little personal when we start talking about our checking account or our savings account or our kids or our family. Uh, That gets a little harder for us to acknowledge. And maybe we can, uh, maybe we can say that with our words that we acknowledge that, but with our actions and our heart, right? That's going to be the true test as to if we are truly acknowledging that everything is the Lord's. If you can do those two things, know that you are not your own and that everything is the Lord's, 
that is what allows you to live radically for God. Um, I've got great examples of that, of people who know what that means. Uh, some of them are sitting right here in this front row. We've got my sister and brother-in-law. Uh, they know this. This is what allowed them to uproot their lives for two years and go to Utah and uh, plant, help plant a church in the middle of Mormon country, some of the hardest church planting ground that there is. Uh, my dad's been retired for three years. Uh, he's spending his retirement working with Fellowship of Christian Athletes because he desperately knows the need for teenagers to know the gospel. Um, my aunt, who is uh, not here with us, uh, well, she's here on this earth, she's not here today. Um, uh, she, uh, she served as an, a missionary for the IMB for eight years in Chile. And then when she came back, she taught for a year or two, realized she still wanted to be full-time mission. So she's now the, the missions pastor at West Conroe Baptist Church. Um, outside of our family, Courtney and I, we always joke. Um, I don't know if you guys know Jocelyn Haddenberger. Um, it's one of Courtney's very good friends. Um, I always joke that she is going to be the unsung hero who is lording over all of us in heaven because she has lived such a faithful life here on this earth. She, as a single mom, has taken in 17 foster children and adopted four for herself. She has made the cause of the orphan her own. Um, and those are just countless stories of those who have given their lives for the gospel. And that can happen unless we truly believe that uh, we are uh, our, our own, that we are to live for ourselves. We have to know that we are living for the gospel. So with that, let's take a little bit of a deep dive into the stewardship of the gospel, our gifts, and our possessions. Okay, so one of, as a Christian, one of the things we are to steward over is the gospel generously sowing the message that has been entrusted to us. What were Jesus' last words here on this earth? They were what? The Great Commission. They told us, he told us to go and spread his message across the world, making disciples of all nations. Right after that, in Acts chapter 1, right before he spent, sends the Holy Spirit um, onto the world, he tells us that we are to go out in the power that he will be sending to Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. We are to be stewards over the mystery of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, we've all been made known the mysteries of God. Each and every single one of us in here, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, that's what the gospel's done, right? It's made known all of these mysteries, um, of God. So what we're really saying here is, is when he says that we're to be stewards over the mysteries of God is we are to be stewards over the gospel itself. And that's ultimately how we will be judged, how we steward, how we stewarded, steward, stewarding um, the gospel um, that's been entrusted to us. And we see no better illustration of this um, than the parable of the talents. Uh, so the last part of the parable of the talents may be on here, Matthew 25, 24 through 30. Um, but to set this up, uh, many of us know the parable of the talents. So there was a man who entrusted uh, to three different servants different amount of money or what was called talents. 
uh, to one he gave five, to one he gave two, to another he gave one. And so the man goes away, and when he comes back, um, he calls his servants, and they are now to be held accountable for how they used uh, his talents. Uh, so to the one with five, he calls up and he said, uh, you know, what'd you do with my money? And he said, master, I've, you know, taken your five talents and I made five more. So he has 10 talents. And his master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been in, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much and he will, you will come and enter into the joy of your master. Similarly, uh, similarly, he called the one with two talents, and he said, um, what did you do with my money? And he said, uh, Master, I've uh, made you an additional two talents. I Here's four talents. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Come and enter into the joy of your master. So we're going to pick up in verse 24, where Jesus addresses the servant that he gave one talent. Uh, so he also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more, who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." So Jesus, using money as an illustration, clearly intends for us to multiply his kingdom, his glory, through the utilization of our gifts and our resources and the spreading of his message. To those who can put their hand to the plow now and sow and reap generously and lean into him, he will be put over even that much more. But to the one who hides this message, who does nothing with it, there is no place for him in the kingdom of God. He will be cast out. So I want to make one very clear uh, distinction here. I don't want y'all to hear me that you can work your way into the kingdom of heaven. You can only get to the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So make sure y'all are hearing that. Um, but what this is saying is that because of Christ in us and the gospel that has filled us up, we can't help but live a life that bears fruit with what God has given us. God has given some of us five talents, and so we're going to make a lot more. Some of us he's given two, and so we'll make less than the person with the five talents, but we are still going to, we're still charged with utilizing what we've been given to spread the glory of God. So I'm going to leave that with y'all and move on to the next topic. We could stay here for a long time. <clears throat> uh, but next, let's look at the stewardship of our gifts. Okay. So as we are to be torchbearers and stewards of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has given us gifts to help spread the message and aid the body of Christ. And we are to be stewards over those gifts. First Peter 4.10 states, as each of us has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Continuing further down that passage, we see here we are to use these gifts so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It has been promised that we've all been given at least one spiritual gift, and we are part of the community into which those gifts are uh, needed. Um, Everybody has something different to bring to the table, but since we are part of a body, it's up to us individually, each to steward well over what we've been given so that the full body can function. Um, To be honest, I really have not enjoyed uh, the topic of spiritual gifts in the past. I've taken many of the hundreds of surveys that people put out that tell you what your gifting should be. I honestly get in my head when I'm answering all of those questions, so I have no idea the validity of what those um, surveys uh, tell me that I'm gifted at. I couldn't tell you what they told me I was gifted at. Um, But really, it's because a lot of the insecurity is like, hey, I don't know what my gifting is. I'm not really sure if I'm gifted in a lot of different ways, um, so I'm just going to kind of gloss over it. Um, Well, I've been a part of a discipleship group over the last few years, and some of the things that we've talked about are our spiritual gifts. And the importance of, uh, the importance that we have to, uh, to take the time to discover where our giftings are. Um, you can't steward over something as commanded if we don't know what we um, have been given to steward over. So it's very important that we think about these things. So I'm gonna give you two things that are gonna help you to know what your giftings are. Number one, Be involved in our church community. Make yourself known to other believers because other people are going to be able to tell you what your giftings are so much better than you'll be able to tell yourself. Um, So at Providence, uh, one of the ways we do that is community groups. Um, Some of those have taken a little bit of a hiatus due to COVID. So as we announce more details on those coming up very, very soon, uh, pay attention. Get involved in one. Uh, of the many, 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 many benefits that you will have being part of a church community, uh, one of those things might be somebody telling you what your spiritual gifts are. So that's a great thing. Uh, The second thing is to serve broadly and serve often. How many times have we said, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't know if I've been called? Well, you don't know if you're called unless you try to do something. You don't know if you're passionate unless you try to do something. And if it's not for you afterwards, that's okay. Move on to the next one. We're probably quickly finding out that preaching may not be a gifting of mine, and that's okay, (laughs) because we're eventually gonna find out where I'm already behind. Um, So I'm gonna try to go through this a little bit, but we're gonna spend the most of our time and money because when we think of stewardship, that's pretty much what most people think of is our possessions, our money. Uh, And the good news is, is I don't have to come up here. um, I wouldn't do that. I would make Sean do it. Uh, I'm not talking about money because we're not asking for money. Like we get to just talk about it in the context of normal, uh, everyday Christian life or life. Um, And we're going to spend a lot of our time because if you're like me, chances are you think about your money a lot. You think about how to best maximize your money. That's likely why why you are working. Um, Some people are are saints and they work for free um, because they love what they do. But I work for money. Um, We think about how we can best stretch our money, how we can best save our money, how we can spend less of our money, how we can use our money to uh, go on the next vacation, to do do the next house project, whatever it might be. Chances are, if you're married, this is a source of very lively discussions in your marriage. 
Money, I know it is for Courtney and me. Uh, Courtney knows I'm gonna tell a couple of these stories. Um, so just, I should have known money would all, always be an issue for, for Courtney and me. Uh, I mean, we're 13 years into this, we've got it down now. Um, but our proposal story, the day that um, I went to go and ask my in-laws to marry their daughter, to ask permission, um, I was very excited. I was very nervous. Um, Courtney was over serving in East Asia on a vision trip with crew, um, which is, you know, when I knew I was going to propose to her right as she got off the plane, um, because that's where we went and spent a year of our life after we got married over in East Asia, and I went over to my in-law's house, and uh, they knew I was, why I was there, obviously, because um, Courtney wasn't there, and it would have been, been weird if I was just there. <laughs> so I go, they sit down, and I ask them, like, Jim, Jane, I love your daughter. Uh, can I marry her? Um, I thought their response was going to be, of course, you are the son we never had. You're an incredibly godly man. You're perfect for our daughter. Um, we could think of no better person for her than you. Eventually, they did say those things. <laughs> Maybe not directly to me, but I can see it in their heart and in their face. And this is a true story. Jim, if you know Jim, it kind of makes sense. But Jim looks at me, and he's like, hmm, have you seen Courtney's credit card? And I was like, I don't, I don't know what to say. And I was just like, well, no, but you're taking care of that for us, right, before we get married. Um, so money was always going to be an issue. Uh, Courtney uh, likes to spend generously. Uh, I like to say I'm practical. Courtney may call it cheap. Um, another just silly example of this is when we were first married, we, from time to time, would have uh, people over for dinner. Um, and I had an ambitious grocery budget of $75 a week for Courtney and myself, um, which I doubt we ever really hit. Um, so. Inevitably, every time, so when you have people for, over for dinner, after you eat dinner, what do you want to do? You want to eat dessert. So inevitably, every time, Courtney was like, I think I want to do a fruit pizza for dessert. And I'm like, okay. So let me tell you, if y'all don't know what a fruit pizza is, uh, it's very delicious. It's, uh, a sh it looks like a pizza. It's got a sugar cookie base for the crust. It's got some kind of cream cheese concoction for the sauce and... Uh, uh, the cheese, and then you top it with different fruits. You've got raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, kiwi, any of the berries that cost about $15 at the store. So here we are having people over for dinner. Courtney wants to make a fruit pizza. That's going to cost us $25. I'm like, you want to spend a third of our grocery budget on making a fruit pizza for these people? Okay, well, that's fine. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to eat it. Uh, we're going to give each of them a small slice because we're going to have to eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next two days after this fruit pizza is over. So if y'all are some of the fortunate people to have come over and eaten a fruit pizza at our house, just know that, uh, well, you're eating gold. You're literally eating a third 
of our grocery budget <laughs> rolled into the dough of that fruit pizza. Um, <clears throat> we don't make fruit pizza anymore at our house uh, very often. So we talk about money a lot. Uh, that, those stories just demonstrate how much money is always on our mind. I'm constantly counting the cost of what it's going to be. It drives my wife crazy. Uh, you know, when we get excited about something, I'm like, well, what's the cost going to be? Um, and here's the issue. The more we think about money, the more we internalize money and think about how we build up our own wealth and we start to kind of close our fist around it, um, what does that do? It turns into greed. And here's the problem with greed. No one thinks they're greedy. It's hard to see. Both in Luke and Matthew, same story, different perspectives, Jesus says that the love of money literally darkens your eye. It has the effect of blinding you spiritually that you don't see it taking hold of your life. Tim Keller was giving a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. Uh, you've got like pride, lust, envy, and, and greed is one of them. And it was the day he was going to speak on greed. And his wife's like, hey, Tim, what are you, um, I call him Tim, uh, what are you uh, going to be preaching on? And he said, greed. And she chuckled and she's like, well, no one's going to come to that. And he's like, well, why not? She's like, because no one thinks they're greedy. They're going to be bored. And sure enough, she was right. It was the lowest attended of the sermons that he did on the seven deadly sins. And so the issue is, if you think this isn't a struggle for you, be careful. You might be blind to it. You may not have a struggle with this, but the Bible talks so much about money and our possessions that chances are you're struggling with this one way or another. And it's the sin of the, here's the issue, uh, going off script, it's the sin of the eye because like the eye, what you see in front of you, you see like the pleasures of this world, you see things that uh, are pleasing, uh, things that you might want, whatever it might be. Uh, and if you're not fixated on the gospel, your, your eye, whether you like it or not, is slowly turning to the things of this world. And it, it, it's just like the Bob Lampkin story, right? He wasn't chasing after the gospel. He wasn't fixated on the gospel. And so your, your eye slowly starts to turn and lust after the things of this world. And in the woodlands, we have to be careful. We call this a bubble. Uh, we need to get out of the bubble, um, because if you live here, chances are you know where your next meal is coming from. You know where your next year's worth of meals are coming from. You've got transportation that takes you to and from any place that you want. We have apartments or houses of varying sizes, and we're comfortable. And that com comfortability makes us some of the richest people on the face of this planet. And so if you think that Jesus is not talking to you here in the Bible as the rich man, you are wrong. He is definitely talking to us. And the problem is this, no one, because no one thinks they're rich. We all have friends who are richer. We all have people who drive nicer cars, have nicer houses, wear nicer clothes, take nicer vacations, and we become fixated on it, and we want to get to what that person's doing, and when we finally get there, guess what? There's the next person who's richer than you are there. It never ends. The cycle repeats and repeats and repeats, and we are completely blind to it. 
So what are the ramifications of that? We've just been talking about how we are to steward over the gospel and our gifts. So what are the ramifications if we let greed take hold of our lives? Um, They'll pull up Matthew 13, 18 through 23 here on the screen. But basically, we can look to the parable of the sower to find out. Many of you guys know this parable as well. Um, The sower, he goes out and he sows seeds. He throws some seeds on the path um, and the birds come and gobble the seed up. There are seeds that are sown in the rocky soil and that initially springs up, but at the sign of the sun or it it gets scorched by the sun because there's no root. Uh, There are seeds that are thrown amongst the thorns um, and they can't bear fruit because they are choked by the thorns. And then there's seeds that... um, there are seeds that land in the good soil and they bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times um, what it normally was. The great thing about the parable of the sower is we don't have to interpret what this means. Jesus literally tells his disciples um, a little later down in the chapter, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Here's the explanation of the parable of the sower. Here then, the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom of of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now pay attention to this one. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for the one that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and in another thirty. So what this is saying is if our cares are on the world and not on Jesus, it literally chokes our ability to bear any fruit in the gospel, which we ultimately saw in the parable of the talents, is how we are going to be judged. To the one who has more, more will be given. To the one who has nothing, even what he does have, will be taken away and he will be cast out. So how we handle our possessions and how we, and how we think about our uh, possessions and our views on money 100% has bearing um, as to where we're at on our sanctification process with the Lord and our ability to steward over the gospel. So what do we do about it? Whew. I'm running out of time. Um, the opposite of greed is generosity. Uh, Tim Keller calls it radical generosity. David Platt, in his book Radical, just calls it radical. Um, But our ability to be open-handed with our possessions and to view them through through the lens of the gospel, that that is what would cause us to be incredibly generous. Generosity is the opposite of greed. Generosity has marked the Christian church from its earliest days. The Christian church and Christians have been marked by radical generosity. Uh, I'm going to read you guys a quote from the 4th century century Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate. He's called the Apostate by Christians because of his hatred and rejection toward Christianity. And he was trying to stamp out Christianity. 
And this is what he said about the early church. He said, atheism, which Christians were called atheists at the time because we did not believe in the Roman gods. Atheism has been specifically advanced through the loving treatment rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So here's a guy who's trying to stamp out Christianity, and he says, we can't. They're living better lives than our own. They're taking better care of our own than we are. How are we going to stamp them out? They have nothing, but they lack nothing. That is the generosity displayed by the early church and what we are to model. Can we say that about our American church today? So as Christians, we can be generous because we believe in two facts. First is creation. We just looked at Psalm 24, 1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or we can turn to Isaiah, and it says that God sits at his throne and the earth is his footstool. As Christians, we know that God's created the world. He's created us, he's created life, and everything is his. So we are to steward over those things, but we ultimately know that creation is his. The second fact that allows us to be generous is redemption. We know that the earth is not our home. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are redeemed and destined to spend eternity with our Savior. That's what allows us to be able to leave our homes, go on mission, uh, not care what people say about us, because we are citizens of God's kingdom. Uh, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to. Um, We have an election on Tuesday, right? It does not matter who wins the election. Let's pour our time and our energy into, into propagating the kingdom that we really belong to, which is God's, right? Um. We can take comfort in whatever happens on Tuesday or the weeks afterwards, as they're telling us, that God is still in control and that we are living for God's kingdom. Okay, so to wrap this up really quickly, um, that begs some logical questions, which is where do we give our money and how much of it do we give? Uh, First, where to give? uh, One of the benefits of being part of a local church is you can give to the church. Uh, we are a, an organization that, uh, that helps both body and soul. As humans, we are two parts. We're body and we're soul. You need to meet the needs of both. There's a lot of organizations who do a ton of good, and they should continue to do that good, meeting the physical needs of people who are uh, uh, disadvantaged or um, you know, you know, feeding them, whatever they might be doing, but they're, they're not healing their soul. Only religious organizations can do that. It does you no good to go and feed somebody to lead them to die full, but damned to hell, right? Uh, Conversely, as Christians, it does us no good to go and share the gospel and lead them to die of starvation. You've got to meet both needs, the body and the soul. So give to organizations that are meeting the needs of both of those, uh, the church being one of them. Usually of more interest is how much to give. So I'm simply going to say what I've heard many times before, that 10% is the goal and the minimum, and I'll explain why. First, we have the Old Testament law. 10% was the law. It's what um, God had dictated that they need to give. And so you might be saying, well, 
Jesus came and fulfilled the law. We're no longer under the law. Well, that's true. Uh, So what's your example? Well, you're in trouble now because Jesus is your example. He's the one who gave it all. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though Jesus was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He gave everything. Jesus says, where your treasure, your heart will be too. Jesus, we just saw, gave everything for our souls, for our lives. We are Jesus's treasure. What love and what grace has not been generously poured on all of us? Grace upon grace, it says. So how can we, in the face of that, not turn around and give everything else? How can we not be that same amount of generous? Right? Because the Old Testament question was this. In light of the law, how much do I give? They were looking to the law to tell them how much to give. The New Testament question is this. In light of all that Jesus has given, how much do I dare keep? So to wrap this up, uh, going back to Matthew 25, right after the parable of the talents, Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. And how does he separate them? It's not by those who say they believed in him. It's who fed him, who clothed him, who gave him a drink how we cared for those around us. And again, make sure you hear me. I'm not saying you can work your way into salvation that comes through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what Jesus is saying here is at the end of the day, he's going to know who his children are by the fruit we produce, by the generosity displayed, by the way we stewarded the gospel, our gifts, and our possessions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the message that you've given us on stewardship and the way that you have generously poured yourself out to all of us um, so that we can be saved from ourselves, saved from our sins. Um, Thank you, Father, in light of that, help us to go out and live generous lives for you. Amen.